0: Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, this movie fucked around and there were box office consequences and repercussions. This is life. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone.
1: Welcome to the Blast Zone.
0: I am John Drake, the in house film critic of my Letterboxd account.
1: And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies.
0: Thank you for joining us today on our podcast about movies that bombed at the box office. Remember, these are not all bad movies, but they're all movies that did badly. That's right. So we're going to have an exciting episode today. We've got a great guest. So excited! Our guest today is a writer, podcaster, comedian. He's one of the hosts of the Hilarious Clowncast podcast. That's right. And his hour-long special, Girls Don't Twerk to Jokes, is available to stream anywhere that's worth a damn. It's Niles Abston. Niles, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. That's a great intro. <laughs> so you guys yeah.
0: do my do my homework, get ready, and it pays off. That's how we. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I caught what you did with the little beginning line. That was real clever. I like that.
0: <laughs> Try to work one of those in every week. It's not always easy to come up with, but uh, for this for this was- movie, it was a good one. So before we start talking about this week's movie, we like to go around talk about something else we all watched this week that we liked. So we can give you guys a little peek into our pop culture habits and kind of what we're into. So Niles, what'd you check out this week?
2: Two things. I watched the new show Invincible on Amazon. It was really good. Like oh. um, I, going into, it, I felt like it was going to be cool. Like an animated show, JK Simmons is playing like the superhero, but I mean, it blew me away. I, the first three episodes were great. So I'm excited to see what's next.
0: Oh, hell yeah. I wanted to check that out. J.K. Simmons is like the perfect superhero voice. Yeah. Like he doesn't look like one, so he doesn't get to play them a lot. So, oh, right, right. animated is perfect. And then what else? You said two things?
2: Yeah. And then uh, I just, I don't know how I never watched this movie, but I just watched the movie Paul for the first time today with the. Seth Rogen plays an alien in the movie and it's directed by Greg Mottola who directed Superbad.
0: Oh, damn. I forgot about that movie until you just said it. I feel like (laughs) it's amazing.
2: Like, it's the two guys that are leaving Comic-Con and they discover an alien that's on the run from the FBI and, like, Bill Hader and Jason Bateman play the FBI agents. Like, it was a great movie. And I was just like, how did I never see this? And, and I, it blew me away today. I, had, I just got really high and watched that shit earlier today. It was dope. I just
0: wrote that down because I seriously Go. forgot to see it after it came out of theaters. And Go back and watch I want to check it out.
2: It's, it's amazing. Go back and watch that shit. Kristen Wiig, too, and she's hilarious. Wow, what a cast.
0: Yeah, I think that's the same thing that happened with, like, Your Highness. They had this crazy cast, and the movie just kind of came and went. But I I still like Your Highness a lot. I go back and watch it once in a while. But, Paul, no, I forgot about that. I got to check that out now. What about you, Ian?
1: You know, I do a lot of homework for this podcast so that I don't sound like an ignorant uh, know-nothing most of the time, or at least parts of the time so i was inspired and in getting ready to to do this episode and i went back and watched shawshank which i hadn't seen in, in years and years and another man, box that office bomb up.
0: that's yeah that's a stay tuned episode right there that movie made yeah. no money when it
1: first came out it's crazy it's so good we have gotta talk about it because it's one of those things that's like you can't believe that it would have bombed because it was like everything anybody talked about that year at least that was my experience of it i don't right. even know when that was but Morgan Freeman... Uh, so like 96, like, 95, 96, maybe? Sounds about right. And, and my thinking was that Eddie Murphy must have watched Shawshank and been like, damn, Morgan Freeman is so badass in this movie. I want to do that, what he did. And then he made the movie we're talking about this week.
0: Yeah, there's definitely um, some parallels between Shawshank and this one, like the prison scenes in Life, the movie we're talking about this week, if we haven't introduced that, are like a lot of them are played for laughs and a lot of them are played super straight and dramatic, but we'll get into that more in a little bit. I checked out that documentary, The Last Blockbuster. Have you guys watched that yet? Yeah, that was cool. I really like that. I mean, I was not old enough to like work in a A video rental store. Like when I was 18, finally, like they were all pretty much going out of business by then. But that was my dream job when I was a kid. The only one we had in my neighborhood was West Coast Video, which, you know, go figure in Queens, the only video (laughs) stores is West Coast Video, right in New York. But yeah, by the time I I turned 18 and like got my working papers to work, because you had to be 18 because they had porn. So you couldn't go there if you were like 15, 16 with your working papers. Right. And they were like pretty much everything was on clearance and they were clearing the store out. So that was a bummer. But watching it was, yeah, real nostalgic. And I think they could come back now, the way like record stores have. There's like enough hipsters around that some of them would definitely pay whatever to to rent a few movies a month. A little novelty
1: type thing. Yeah, but, you know, exactly. As like, a comedian. Like with VHS tapes, or what do you think? Like,
0: nah, D- whatever. DVDs, VHS, <laughs> even, bro. yeah.
1: As, as
2: a comedian, though, I had to laugh at that shit and make fun of it a little bit. Cause it's just like, this lady not have no hobbies that she's just holding on to Blockbuster. Like, come on, dude. It did see.
0: She was like, yeah, I get to work every day at 4 a a.m. and I leave at midnight like just taking care of Blockbuster. (laughs) The funniest
2: shit, though, was her looking up what movies came out that week and she goes to Target and just buys all the DVDs. And so I'm just like, she takes them to Blockbuster and puts them in the Blockbuster. And I'm just thinking like, what if you come up there wanting to get the new Avengers DVD and shit? You look up there and it's all gone. You're like, ah, it's that fucking Blockbuster lady again. Like, I would just be (laughs) mad
0: as shit. Exactly. Like DVD purchasing in that town is down and video rentals are are up 600% compared to the rest of the world.
1: Right. She's just clearly the shelves,
0: yeah, it's wild. I mean, you should check it out though. It's interesting, they get a lot of cool people to come on and talk about yeah, it. It's very interesting, it's worthwhile, but yeah, there's definitely some parts where you're like, really, like all this for really, Blockbuster. It's really funny <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah, this poor woman does not have like much of a, a social life, clearly, because she's just so focused on keeping the store afloat. She's always stressed out, but I think the documentary probably did a lot for her business. So they're
2: probably oh, sure. I, I feel like a lot of people are going there just to get a picture in front of the building.
0: So. Yeah, exactly. And they'll probably go in there, and even if they just buy some candy or whatever, that's money right. in their pocket.
2: So. I, I want to go. I want to go and go do it. If I was in
0: Oregon, if it was like less than two hour drive, I would definitely go check it out.
2: Go check it out. Next time I'm in Portland, I'm gonna try.
0: Yeah, I don't think oh, it's oh, that nice. far from Portland. I think it's yeah, like it's, maybe it's like an, like an hour.
2: Okay. We're outside, so we'll go check it out.
0: Absolutely. Oh. So this week's movie we're talking about, we we might have uh, outright said it, but maybe we glossed over it. We're talking about 1999's Life, starring Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. An ambitious movie, like decades spanning kind of epic that was kind of misunderstood when it came out. I think people went into it expecting like this kind of zany comedy. And what they got was a lot like a funny movie in a lot of parts, but just a really like serious, dramatic movie at times as well. So I think- kind of a theme we've seen with the movies we cover on here is like movies that don't fit into a genre they don't really know how to market them mm-hmm. to get people out there to go see it or if they do mark like they marketed this movie if you go back and watch the trailers it's all jokes like it looks like this is gonna be just a you know a laugh a minute and probably when people came out of the theater some of them might have been upset that they were expecting this just hilarious comedy the whole time and they got this movie that's really like sad at times
2: <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It makes me wonder, like, what did what did Eddie Murphy think it was? What did Ted Demi think it was? Was there I like a disconnect? Was, I
2: think it was just way ahead of its time, with the subject matter in the movie. Because if that movie comes out this year, oh, it makes so much money, and it gets nominated for everything. But I I just feel like at the time, I don't think people were ready for a movie like that. Like, I feel like black people didn't really want to see a movie with two dudes in prison for something they didn't do for the rest of their life. And I think the movie has a lot of things that would make white people in the 90s feel very uncomfortable, too. And so I think when you're making two groups of people very uncomfortable and you throw Eddie Murphy and Martin in it, so people are expecting just to laugh for two hours or whatever. Like, I think it threw a lot of people off.
0: Yeah. The movie gets dark at times. It does not shy away from kind of the darker subject matter at all. And I think genre doesn't matter as much now with streaming. Like People are going to check out your movie either way. Back then, yeah, it was more like movies had to fit into a neat box a little more. And this one definitely didn't, which I think has kind of made it get a little bit of a critical reevaluation now. People are kind of going back to it. I read a few reviews that were posted in the last couple of years that were really complimentary compared to the ones that came out when it first was released that were a little more just like confused. What is this movie trying to do? What is it trying to say? So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about how the movie got made and what happened when it was first released. So in 1998, Eddie Murphy was at a bit of a career crossroads. He was just about to alternate one of the biggest hits of his career in Dr. Doolittle with one of the biggest bombs of his career in Holy Man. So it was at this point Murphy decided to pursue a passion project of his, a decade-spanning prison epic that would examine America's relationship with race and incarceration. As one does. He recruited writers Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone, whose sole prior writing credit was the poorly received 1995 comedy-slash-drama Destiny Turns on the Radio, to write the script and recruited friend Martin Lawrence, who he had worked with on 1993's hit film Boomerang to play the co-lead. He's so crazy. Ted Demi, who frequently worked with Dennis Leary and was coming off the best received effort of his career with Beautiful Girls, was chosen to direct and filming began in March of 1998 with California filling in for the Mississippi setting of the movie. Principal photography was completed on June 19, 1998. With a film firmly aimed at adults, the movie received an R rating and was set for an April 16, 1999 release date. The film would have a solid opening weekend, earning just over $20 million, but the returns would drop off sharply in subsequent weeks due to mixed reviews and without much of an international box office presence. The film would leave theaters with a worldwide gross of $73.5 million, falling well short of its $80 million budget and firmly establishing itself as an ambitious box office bomb. So that's how it went down. And, you know, we like to mention it on the pod, but. If movie makes $73.5 million and its budget is $80 million, it didn't just lose $7 million. It lost like $40 million when you factor in marketing costs and the theater's taking a cut of all the ticket sales. So this movie lost quite a bit of money. You have to make probably double your budget in most scenarios to make anything. So yeah, this was a big loss for the studio. And uh, let's try to get into why we think the movie kind of failed. We touched on it a little bit, but what else, Ian, did did you have to say on that?
1: Well, I mean, I think to Niall's point that people weren't ready. And I think that the filmmakers knew that like they weren't ready for a movie that went really harsh. So like today you can make really harsh stuff and you can put, there's so many dramedies between premium cable shows and streaming and People are just used to the realities, not only of this part of American history, but just in general of like shows that are both funny and then go really seriously dark. And like, so it was a different era. They could they couldn't quite make that. So they they played with it. There were moments, but those moments, I'm sure, felt really weird in yeah. 1999 like we'll get to it later on to see the biscuit story play out which was just yeah. pure tragedy yeah. Like, yeah it's nothing but tra- there's nothing i mean he's this funny comic relief character for part of it and then he's, his end is so tragic right. that you're like what am i watching but mm. nowadays you'd go oh yeah this is just like in barry or whatever when you know some shit went down but back then it's people probably freaked the hell out
0: but you call the movie life and i think they were trying to like strike a tone that's a lot like life. It's not always funny. It's or it's not always sad. It's a little bit of everything. And that's really like the balance. I think they struck in the movie. But again, it makes it it's a hard sell. Nobody really knows what to do with that, especially back then. Yeah. And Ted Demi directing it, I have this theory that he really didn't do anything on this movie. Like I think Eddie Murphy like <laughs> ghost directed this movie because this was like his baby. He wanted to make this for a long time. And then Ted Demi was like a nobody at the time. He would direct Blow after this one. Well,
2: he directed Blow. I didn't know yeah,
0: that. That was like that was his last movie actually. he, he died at thirty eight in two thousand two. Oh, right. Yeah. He had a heart attack. But yeah, he hadn't done any big movies. He had Beautiful Girls, which people kind of liked, but it was very like low budget under the radar. And okay. then Eddie Murphy just kind of plucks him out of nowhere to direct this movie. So I really think Eddie Murphy was just looking for somebody that he could kind of guide to make the movie he wanted to make. You know what I mean?
2: Right. That makes
0: sense. so. that's that's my little theory about it. I mean, this is not backed up by anything except my weird brain making connections. Yeah. But I just know Eddie Murphy. He's a guy that when he wants to make a movie his way, like he's going to do what he has to do. And he had the star power back then to really get it done. So. All right. We, so, could,
1: we could what, talk about it as we're about to jump into the story and we'll talk about exactly what happens that doesn't happen. My other main theory is that like the writers let them down, like Eddie and Martin go off. They get to do their thing. A lot of it, which feels improvisational, like they have all these fun arguments and stuff. But yeah. as far as like the, the beats of the story moving forward, there's yeah. to me, there's something missing. The They're
2: story not, is off like the second half of the
1: movie. Yeah, because I didn't feel attached to these characters because it felt like stuff was happening to them rather mm. than them, because of their unique personalities, like finding their way through this life. It was just like watching a lot of stuff happen to them.
0: I think that's a problem you see a lot with prison shows or a show like, or a movie where somebody's stuck in a setting. It's like stuff keeps happening to them rather than they're driving the action. But
1: that's true.
0: That's a part of the the reality of that situation is you don't have much of a say in, in how your life goes so you kind of have to sit back and just let things happen to you unfortunately but you see that, it sometimes in like army movies too it a similar setting like you're stuck there you can't right. leave you got to listen to what people say
2: right and I think the way it, it kind of set it up at first because I remember the first time I ever saw it it sets it up for you to I guess you think that the movie is going to be about them trying to escape and when it doesn't do that it's just it, it becomes like a letdown I don't think it makes it a bad movie but I think yeah. it's what it, it makes you think that's what's going to happen and like they're gonna go on this adventure and like get out and make it back to new york but
1: in actuality that's not what happens <laughs> so, it's right. just, so yeah i think that was part of the problem too just with the story and the way it's set up that's a great yeah. point like it it nods to that there's kind of a thread it keep coming back to escapes and they keep talking about they talk to each other as though they were people who were famous for constantly trying to escape but mm-hmm. the evidence that you see in the movie is like that's just a thing that happened a couple times here and there it's not there like yeah, oh, man, and this isn't exactly
0: totally. like the prison from the show Prison Break. If you catch like a guard sleeping, you could just walk by him. There's no fences, there's no. So, I did think though that it was kind of a cool decision to have it set up like this is going to be this epic chase where they're going to get out, they're going to they're going to be on the run, but it's kind of deflating for everyone, the characters and the audience when they just get dragged right. back time and again. But yeah. it felt like it rang true to me. I don't know. Like I think yeah, that that part of it really, kind of worked. That's really yeah. how
2: that's how it's supposed to be.
0: Yeah, prison breaks usually don't work. So, If you had a movie where these guys just get out and go off and live their life, it might be an entertaining movie. But it wouldn't ring true. And I think it would kind of go against what they were trying to say.
2: Exactly. And how many black dudes was escaping from prison in the 30s from Mississippi? I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah,
0: even if you get out, like people are going to be looking at you sideways.
2: Where are you going to go next? <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah. They got no money. They have no transportation. They're looking for a boat. They don't even really have a map. But let's get into that when we talk about the story. So it starts off in 1932. Ray Gibson and Claude Banks, that's Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, respectively, meet in a New York City nightclub. To get out of a jam with the club owner, Spanky, played by Rick James, the pair agree to go on a bootleg whiskey run to the South after picking up the booze in Mississippi and running into trouble at a local bar. A crooked lawman named Sheriff Pike frames Ray and Claude for murder, and they are sentenced to life in prison. So that's a quick synopsis, but that's, that's a big chunk of the movie right there. That's like 30 minutes of this movie. Almost right. a quarter of the whole story takes place before these two actually get sentenced to prison. So, I mean, seeing Rick James in this movie was was a big deal for me. That took me back. Love Rick James. I didn't know. He didn't even... I didn't even recognize him at first. He really didn't even look like himself. No, I think he was... No.
2: You, don't, you don't recognize it until you really like see the credits and like, spanky is Rick James. You're like, wait, What? Like I, didn't, I definitely yeah. didn't want it the first time I watched.
0: It. He did a good job too. Like he was believable. He's so good. He was very good. Yeah.
2: And it just like looking back at like the Chappelle show sketches, like it's just funny. Like him and Eddie Murphy really were friends. Like he yeah. put James in the movie.
0: That's the first thing I, th- I thought about when I saw him in here. Was Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories. That's I was like, like, wow,
1: that's really
2: true. Not
0: yeah. that I ever doubted the good word of Charlie Murphy, but you know, it's right. good to see it like reinforced on screen.
1: Yeah. So I mean, Rick James is an interesting character because I had to look him up and sort of reconstruct the history of it. By this point, he had already been he was a problematic guy like oh, yeah. i had a lot of fun seeing him in this movie because he's on one hand he's rick james bitch and like you, you see him you expect him to step out and do that but no he actually plays a character really seriously and it's like it plays a great intimidating uh, nightclub owner but yeah rick james realized, had his
0: demons in real life let's not gloss over that's that a big
1: demons <laughs> he was convicted of two different sort of kidnapping and tortures of women it, he uh the second he had, one while he, he was out in his basement right
0: yeah yeah and burning, like he, Burning people with cigarettes and stuff. Like, yeah, it was wild stuff. Was he was really arrested bad.
1: for the first one. He was out on bail during the trial and he committed the second kidnapping and torture. So That's not, not great, a Rick good James. dude. Like no. we can't, we it's have to be careful. Rick James shit if I ever heard it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's not lionize Rick James, but it was, he, yeah. he played the role well in the movie. Right. He, did.
1: he did. And that was, you know, bless Eddie Murphy for giving him this chance to sort of come back.
0: Yeah his music career was pretty much done by this point I think. He well, wasn't really a star anymore.
1: It was over. Yeah.
0: I lived in Buffalo when he passed away and the, like man they came out and the streets <laughs> were full cuz he was he was oh, a oh, Buffalo dude. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he was from Buffalo so they I mean they threw him like a hero's parade and I was just like damn like you guys Wikipedia, I guess, wasn't as big a thing back then. <laughs> but no, it wasn't. Pull up Wikipedia. I was like, you guys might not be throwing these parades. Exactly. <laughs> but a lot of uh, interesting stuff in this first 30 minutes. I was really impressed with like the set design and the costumes Yeah, they got. You know, like the, I think a lot of the movie's budget went to make it feel like era appropriate huh. with the they set up this club in New York. And I mean, that can't be a cheap set to put together and dress everybody the right way, make everything accurate. But it really paid off. It kind of immerses you in the moment, I think. And then some funny interactions. It was interesting seeing Martin Lawrence play like the kind of the square guy, the straight man, the straight laced yeah. character when he's always like acting out in movies. And you really could have probably switched the characters and it would have worked just as well.
2: I feel like it could have been either one. But yeah, him, him as Claude Banks was really funny because it's just like he's just this guy in over his head.
0: Yeah. And this was I think Blue Streak kind of came out around this time. And it's almost like in that he's playing like a straight up con man. So it just kind of shows his range to be able to pull pull both off convincingly. He can really. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to see him in more more dramatic stuff. I'd like to see him and Eddie Murphy get back together. It's the last time they collaborated, I think.
2: Oh, right. They should do something else.
0: Absolutely. And then I, I really laughed at the, in the car ride, <laughs> some, of, some of Eddie Murphy's lines, like when you can't say watch anymore, say little clock or some shit.
1: I love that line. <laughs> That's
0: such it. a good line. So- I was, wrote that one down. All right. So take us through Act 2, and What happens after this?
1: All right. So moving on, they're at the prison camp, Ray and Claude. They meet a couple of cruel guards and a whole colorful cast of inmates, interesting characters. Ray has to prove his toughness in a fight with uh, Goldmouth, who's a pretty intimidating uh, inmate in particular. Claude gets his lawyer cousin to try to get him out on appeal, but he doesn't try to get Ray out, but that fails. And so not having that option, Ray and Claude decide to attempt their first escape. They try to break out, captured pretty quick, kind of uneventful, and they're sent right back and have to do a week in the hole.
0: With the whole just looks like a big porter potty. A couple of (laughs) (laughs) porter potties out on the lawn. That's
1: like like
2: one of my favorite lines to quote in the movie when they may rose. She's a little girl. She's like, Night in the hole, daddy. Like that shit is just (laughs) funny. Like the fact that she's just like this little kid at this prison camp. And they like normalized that she was just like telling the prison guards like what to do to these shit. (laughs) That
1: was dark. I was like, oh shit. So much power. And then of course (laughs) he
0: overrules her and puts them in for a week. So she tried to do them a favor, I guess, just one night. But
1: yeah, I I
2: mean I love. when they get to the prison, like the way all the characters are introduced is just amazing to me at the cafeteria table. I, I just think that shit is just so funny because apparently they just kind of let those were like all the, the stand up comedians were kind of in those roles, mm-hmm. and so they kind of just let everybody just do their thing and they set the cameras up and shit. So, like, you got. Guy Tori telling really funny stories and Bernie Mac playing Jangle Egg like uh-huh. it's just all those guys just telling like these funny stories like one of them says like he killed uh, he kills Santa Claus Santa Claus <laughs> that's He's a like, real one the real one he killed a guy dressed up as Santa Claus like that shit is like I mean they were just talking and like you could tell that wasn't written in the script that was just them improvising because they were just coming up with these heinous crimes like skinning <laughs> people alive and all this kind of shit. so like the fact that like Eddie Murphy is just like yeah we just got off a killing spree like he had to really. Ju- his up. So they'd be scared of them too. Like that. I just thought that was just so funny because you, you can only imagine what being in prison was like back then. you got to be the toughest guy there. So of course. that scene, that's like one of my favorite scenes. Outside of the pie shop scene, that's probably my favorite scene in the movie.
0: Yeah. Pie shop scene when they're first on their way down to Mississippi, we didn't talk about that was a great scene. I, I was doing a little research for this. They, they originally played it where Eddie Murphy, was the character that got angry and Martin Lawrence tried to calm him down. And they Uh, said, uh, for whatever reason, the scene wasn't working the way they wanted it. So they switched around the roles. And it was just like electric. So,
2: yeah, I mean, when the when the white guy is just looking at them crazy and he he says his name because it's on his shirt. And then the lady comes out, she's like, well, if you boys can read so good, why didn't you see the sign? And it said no colors allowed on the wall. I remember the first time I saw that, I screamed. I was laughing so hard (laughs) because it's just like that shit was just so funny. Like that scene is hilarious. Just iconic.
0: Just mining humor from pain. It's like yeah. that's what it is. And then the scene like in the cafeteria, like you were talking about, it just shows if you just let funny people do their thing and let yeah. the cameras roll, like something good will happen.
2: Something good is but you're gonna get a good take. And so it's just like Eddie Murphy telling him, like, no, nah, you're not giving them your cornbread. Next thing you be running this bathwater, like that shit is <laughs> so funny.
0: And then I, I think another scene, I can't swear to it, but it felt improvised. Is when Eddie Murphy's reading the letter from Poker Face. Oh,
2: that had to be improvised. <laughs> and everyone oh. he's ever met is just dying or dead. Like he probably was just. There's probably so many takes they didn't use, and he was just saying all that funny shit. And then he looks at everybody. And he's like, "Anybody else got a letter they want me to read?" Now he's like, "No, nope. I'm good. <laughs> like, no good, no." Because like a lot of those guys couldn't read. Like they were from Mississippi, and it was the 30s. Like majority of them couldn't read. And so like that shit is just funny. Like you get a letter, and you don't even know what's going on.
0: That scene was probably the hardest laugh I had for the whole movie. That was. I was dying oh. when that was happening. Yeah. But interesting. Uh, so
2: was like, the like dog died too. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's like, oh yeah, if they can get rid of the worms. Oh, it right. says here actually they didn't get rid of the worms. Dogs dead <laughs> soon. So. so funny. Just the timing on it was great. And this was an interesting prison, a prison like any I've ever seen in the movies where they have like picnics where your family can come hang out or just random yeah. girls can come hang out.
2: That was the thing. So like me being from Mississippi, like that's why me and my friends like love this movie so much. There's not too many movies set in Mississippi. But like that's a thing in Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. A lot of these older plantations were turned into prison. So mm-hmm. a lot of the prisons were really kind of geared around yard work and agriculture and, and all that kind of stuff. So like that's how a lot of prisons were in the South. It was more of like a camp and they wow. called it a camp. Date. So it, it like in the South, prisons really turn it into like buildings with cells. That was more of a thing that happened like in the 50s, 60s, whereas mm. like the early 20s, 30s, 40s, like a lot of them were basically like plantations turned into inmate camps.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just can't imagine the amount of free labor they got out of all these inmates. It's insane. Right, right. And,
2: and then he even says that at the end of the movie. He's like, at least the state of Mississippi got some free labor. Like, that's what they saw them as. That was right. The whole,
0: yeah, it's the very like dehumanizing. Time. And then we skip ahead to 1944. So they've been in prison for a minute now. The guys discover a mute inmate named Can't Get Right, played by (laughs) Joaquin Woodbine. So they find out he's got incredible talent for baseball. He attracts interest from a a local scout. The white daughter of the camp superintendent gives birth to a biracial child, and all the inmates pull an I'm Spartacus move to protect Can't Get Right's identity as the father. Can't Get Right is given a pardon to be able to play baseball. He leaves Ray and Claude behind. They had helped coach him up. They have a falling out over it. And then gay inmate Biscuit commits suicide by cop, trying to escape because he knows he'll get shot to avoid having to go home and face his family uh, when he's got a month left on his time in a scene that is just devastatingly sad. Right. (laughs) I was shocked to see Bokeem Woodbine pop up in this because like, I had no idea he was, he's been acting for this long. He's like one of my favorite actors now since I saw him in Fargo.
2: I love Bokeem.
0: He's awesome. But
2: we had a guy that was a little younger than us and he kind of looked like him when he was younger. So we always called him Can't Get Right. And he used to get in trouble a lot too. (laughs) It's pretty Um, applicable. can't get right is like one of my favorite movie characters of all time. Like he couldn't talk, but he was so good at baseball. And then like the fact that they used his character in the show back then, like you were really good at something, they find a way to get you out. So it's just like how ethical is is prison really? If you can do something that can make somebody some money,
0: yeah, there wasn't nearly as many computer records or anything back then. You could probably finagle something to get somebody out of jail if there was money in it. Right. So that's and uh, Noah Emmerich plays the baseball scout. Yeah, he plays. Him, I don't know, like. Did he seem sincere? Like he was really trying to help this guy? Was he kind of a scumbag? I couldn't really get a read on him.
2: I felt like he was sincere in making money. And he knew he was going to make some money. And so, and then I just think it's just the way they introduced can't get right being good at baseball is like an accident. Like they're just like, let him, just let him take a swing. You let everybody Mm -hmm. else take a swing. Let can't get right. Take a swing. And then he tell Bernie Mac's character like, take it easy on him. He smashes the ball. I'm not going to say the line, but he tells it's a mistake. And so they're like, put a little sauce on it. And then he threw him like a curveball type pitch. And then he crushed it again and so it's just funny that this dude just came out of nowhere and just swing a bat like that but yeah. probably he had played baseball a lot going into that but he's mute so he never told anybody or
1: anything yeah like the little clue was that he when he first shows up at camp he's bouncing yes, that little ball. rubber ball yeah. like, and that's like so he was probably
2: a thing. really good athlete that just got his trouble but he's mute so nobody knew
1: that. Uh,
2: can't get right that's like one of my favorite movie characters
0: and he managed to father a child while he was locked up though right now oh, like,
2: man that, like that lineup scene is just comedy gold like they just they just kind of fed off of each other or whatever the first one and then bernie mac has the funniest one just going eyes to pappy like that shit is just like, i
1: mean i don't even think you could write something like that, that what is- a range for bernie mac in this movie because then 10 minutes later he's playing yeah. the saddest moment in the movie as biscuit's lover like cry yeah. and like fetch his, his dead body out of the grass it's so and, touching. I, love and
2: Andy, I love that scene because it's like you laughing and you're doing all this laughing all the jokes but like i don't think you really think of a lot of times when people are in prison i don't think we really think of like what their psyche of like when they are going to get out eventually what are they thinking about that like these people they, they get anxious before a new job and things like that imagine anxiety you get from you coming to a whole new world after being locked up so it's just like they really showed that in like one scene is like he was just I guess he was just really in fear of what his life would be outside of this. And then he knew like as a gay black dude in the 40s, like they're not going to accept me on the outside like this. So I don't want to go. So it, so it was just very that scene is just it's sad, but it, it's great. Like the layers in it when you really think about
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. And he plays it great. But like you said, I, I'm a person that gets anxiety doing anything different. And I just can't imagine going out into the world after he was locked up at least 12 years because he was in prison when they first arrived. So especially back then, I feel like the world was making such strides, even just technologically. Every year, stuff was changing so fast that the world must have seemed incredibly frightening to somebody who's been kind of stuck in time for our, for all those years.
2: Right. Because, I mean, they were in prison for World War II. So I mean, yeah. America was just a completely different country just historically after those wars. So to miss that and then come out culturally, like, where do you even start? So I'm sure, like, all of that. And then also, you know, I'm gay. Like, those, all those things, like, that really weighed heavily on him to where he was just, like, I'm going to just take my chances with them, them making the
1: decision for me.
0: Right. Right. All right, so take us to the next section, Ian.
1: All right, so suddenly we jump ahead to 1972. Time has passed. They use a pretty nice montage to jump us forward. We can talk about that. But after years and years, like 28 years of not talking to each other after their big falling out, Ray and Claude finally make up while being punished for a pie-stealing incident that kind of ties back to the pie shop scene you know, the, nice you know, call at the and the uh, beginning. Nice callback. And so I'm condensing a lot of plot here. But in their old age, the two guys, now they work at the superintendent's mansion, and now there's a nice superintendent, Wilkins, played by Ned Beatty, and he's getting ready to retire. And so they go to pick up the new superintendent who arrives to take over the place. Turns out it's crooked old Sheriff Pike, who was the one who framed them for murder in the first place. Ray pulls a gun on Pike after seeing that Pike still has Ray's dad's watch. And Pike kind of sort of confesses to framing them. Somehow it sort of becomes clear to Ned Beatty that he needs to defend Ray. He shoots Pike dead. But he dies that same night before being able to pardon Ray and Claude as he promised. So they, yeah. like, they come that close.
0: That twist was a gut punch, man. <laughs> he dies Ooh. on the toilet. I cannot believe these poor guys. Everything right. they've been through.
2: Everything they've been through. You first, if you watch that for the first time, you're just like, what? No, they can't get one win. Shit. I know. I was like, I think the first time I watched it, I was maybe 12 or 13. And like, I was just like, no. But yeah, the montage is, I love the montage, how
0: they kill everybody off. Yeah. Or they get really, we don't know if they all die. They might've gotten out, right? Because not yeah, they everyone was in there for life.
2: So. Might've gotten out. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like the last time you see them all together is like the Rays, Boom Boom Room, Dream. Mm-hmm. sequence like that's really dope and then you go from that too and then you kind of see everybody's exit and so it's like Ray and Claude were in there for life or they like they outlived everybody so that probably put into effect we might as well be friends again now we're both
1: old and nobody else is here and you think <laughs> it's wrapping up that's why it's such a shock when they pull the rug on you on that one because you're like yeah they're in this old age makeup this is it this is the final chapter of the movie and mm-hmm. they're finally getting out and then it happens off screen that Ned Beatty dies right what's his yeah. name the what's the is like nope that didn't yeah. happen So when
0: I had seen this, like when I was 12 or 13, and that was the last time I'd seen it before I watched it for the podcast. So all I remembered was that they do get out eventually, and they go to Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, cool, they're about to get out. Like, and then I was like, I didn't remember that there's this is whole other twist coming. So I was right. really taken aback by that. I was like, oh shit, like,
2: yeah, these poor they, guys. I mean, they put them through a ringer, and so it's like bringing the pie, like the pie thing, bringing that back is hilarious. That's a great callback. But yeah, it's yeah. just one of my favorite lines before they get transferred is when was when the the warden basically he's just like every day I wake up and pray that rain. Claude, like don't, Ray Gibson and Claude Banks don't wake up or some shit like that. He basically lets them know like, I, I hate the two of you, but you kind of grew on me because you were here for so long. And yeah, then, he yeah. kind of
0: gets choked up when he tells them they're getting transferred. I thought there was like a little bit of fondness there.
2: Yeah, he really, yeah, he, they grew on him because yeah. they were just there for a long time. I feel like if you have to be around somebody that long, you're eventually going to like something about them or like that. So that was just really funny that he ended up he ended up kind of liking them at the end. He was an old man too, so like yeah. <laughs> that's just really funny. And then them them moving in with the the superintendent and everything is just like back to the whole theme of like these guys are really just like cheap labor to the state at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like. Why can't they just go like, why can't they just if they're that harmless to where you'll put them in the mansion of a political official and not worry about them doing anything? Why can't they just go home?
0: They've at least been rehabilitated for as much as prison actually gives a fuck about that, which is none. But yeah, they're letting these guys pretty much unsupervised. With the superintendent, clearly they're not a threat to anybody, but they right. they refuse to just let them get on with their lives.
2: And then like two old men sharing a bedroom. So, oh yeah, it. that's a good scene. They live in a, they're living in this huge mansion, but you let these two old dudes is sharing a sharing a bedroom. Like that shit's funny.
0: That was like a sub twin bed, right? That was not even a twin bed. That was like, oh, beds.
2: Was like they were like in a dorm room, basically.
0: A one nightstand to share between the two of them. Just sad state of affairs. Another right.
1: great Eddie Riff as he's like, just I'm going to sit here and stare at you all night.
0: Yeah, Eddie was so good at like just the freewheeling kind of rambling oh. rants he would go on in this movie. I mean, that was always like his calling card, but I feel like he was really dialed in on them in this movie.
2: Yeah, and I think be, playing an old man kind of frees you up from doing that because like I had me and two of my friends, we did some YouTube sketches a couple of years ago where we had old man makeup on and we just kind of improved on a couch like oh. we were in a person home. And it, it was just fun because like it's just a whole new set of rules with playing an old person and the things you can say and kind of get away with. Shit like oh, yeah. that. Old people I'm, can do whatever they want. They can. And so, I feel like, so I feel like them playing those characters was just very fun because the, the improv as old Ray and Claude is just hilarious. Like, yeah. yeah. But yeah.
0: some really good makeup and prosthetics yeah. in this, this section too they really they didn't yeah. play it for laughs at all it's just like super accurate old person yeah,
2: look
1: like old people oh <laughs> yeah. yeah they got an uh, academy award nomination for really makeup,
0: right that was the one that that.
1: recognition that this movie got
0: didn't wow. win though some somehow i wonder what beat it that year because yeah, i be curious to know wonder.
1: that's interesting but yeah
0: then- but actually i think martin lawrence and eddie murphy are both aging better than their characters
2: did in this movie like no. It is a wonder what being rich will do instead of being in prison. They're <laughs> living a little bit better.
0: They both still look great. They both still look right. like they're in their 30s. And
2: they played old men just so well. Because mm-hmm. like one quote, like me and my friends, we quote all the time, is when Claude is like the driver or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so he pulls up in the chauffeur outfit in the car and Ray's clipping the the hedges. And he's like, well, why did you have the car? And all this kind of shit. And then he, Martin's like, why you be saying nasty shit, Ray? And we just <laughs> talk to each other like all the time. just <laughs> We'll just tell each other I'm a nasty motherfucker because <laughs> that's just like our favorite line for the movie.
0: That line came out of nowhere to me. Like it, I was yeah. laughing so it hard did. when he said that. It just
2: it comes out of nowhere. It's like why did he say that? <laughs> it's just funny. Oh
0: man! And then you had Arlie Ernie as as old Sheriff Pike. I mean,
2: I love Arlie Ernie. He was. I mean, he's perfect for that role. Too. Yeah. He looks the part. He just looks like this. Just evil. Like official type guy.
0: To be clear, I don't think he looks anything like the young Sheriff Pike older, but they were just no. like, no, we need an old, evil white guy. Like, who do we have? And you can't go uh-huh. do any better than Arlie Earn. He was perfect. Just, I hated him immediately.
2: Yeah. I hated him immediately. He got, he had the watch. They got the watch from him because they was asking him like, where'd you, where'd you get that watch? And he lied. It was like, my wife gave it to me and all that kind of shit. And that's what set it,
0: Eddie off finally. It's right. Like Ray off. So then uh, we fast forward again to 1997. Ray and Claude live in the prison infirmary, still talking about escaping. (laughs) Fire ends up burning down the infirmary and it appears they both died. But in a twist, they actually finally succeeded in their escape plan. They're 85. They finally are free, living in Harlem and going to Yankee games. So having hot dogs. That's the end of the movie. They finally get out. I wonder how did they get from Mississippi to Manhattan? you You know, even Harlem in the 90s was pretty expensive. Yeah, you know, how do you afford an apartment? You don't have.
2: <laughs> yeah, how did they get? How did they get all the way there? But yeah, that's just the their escape plan is just hilarious to me. Like because the way they do it, you just do not see that coming whatsoever. Like you really, you really think they died? Like one of them dies in the fire. And yeah. So like the fact that they pulled a little switcheroo at the end, I thought was that was real cool.
0: Yeah, it's revealed that it was a uh, Claude got some bodies from the morgue, right? Or yeah hid them in the uh, in the infirmary, and then they snuck out amongst the commotion.
2: Yeah, and it was just this never-quit thing. Like, they, they've they been trying to get out for 50 years, and then they finally get out at 85.
0: That, that part's kind of sad. Even though they get out, it's like, what can they really do now? <laughs> like,
1: they got a good 10
2: years left, if that. Yeah, that's pushing yeah. it. I mean,
1: it was sad. And the, the makeup made it, right? Like, just looking at their faces, and they're these yeah. old guys, they're at the ballpark. And, like, it's a great, it kind of brings it full circle, because one of the questions of the movie the whole time is, like, are they really friends, right? They keep having these falling outs and telling each other, well, we've never really been friends. We just got stuck in this situation together. And then it finally comes home at the end when they're like, try to remember what they were fighting about and they're too old and they can't even remember it. it's like oh i guess we're fine
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah i guess we're good yeah so that's um that's life that's yeah. life the movie i mean we got a few things we could touch on about how the movie performed like we said the reviews when it came out weren't great it got 50 on rotten tomatoes so it split exactly down the middle some you know, half critics liked it half didn't but like I said, if you read any reviews that were written recently, they tend to be more favorable. I think people are kind of look back on this movie more fondly now than they did back then. And so Ted Demi was the director, the nephew of Jonathan Demi, very famous director, directed Silence of the Lambs, many other movies. I'm not going to list them now because I don't want to get one wrong. I was mm-hmm. getting confused on Mike Nichols, but yeah. So Ted Demme sadly died of a heart attack, but he did go on to make Blow, which was a well remembered movie. That's, That's a people, Yeah, people really like Blow. I haven't watched it in forever, but I remember liking it when I was younger. One of the only like Johnny Depp roles where he's just not decked out in scarves and like yeah. bracelets and shit. Like he's just That's an funny. actual person. But then, uh, so Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone wrote it. Ian, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the writing. So these two. Really had no credits when they were hired. I don't know how they got picked to make this movie, but they would go on to write some other movies. They wrote Intolerable Cruelty, which was a Coen Brothers movie, Man of the House, and Soul Men, but then they haven't worked in 10 years. They haven't done anything since 2011. So what specifically about the writing did you want to kind of call out Ian?
1: I don't know. I feel differently about this movie. I didn't have the personal connection to it. Like you guys might have in the sort of first go around. I think I did see it, but like it didn't stick with me. I watched it twice before this week to get prepped for this. And like the first time I was really kind of, I was let down because I wanted to care about the characters more. And I felt like they kind of could have been any two guys in the situation, right? I couldn't name like what was Ray's main character trait it was kind of just that he wanted to have a boom boom room, and Michael's Claude's <laughs> main trait was kind of like I used to be a bank teller, so it was like they weren't. He didn't even I mean, start. No, he didn't even
0: get to start. That's yeah, true. He was he starting. Almost, yeah, he was <laughs> so almost so close. A bank but like,
1: yeah, I just wanted them to be like the action of the movie to tie more specifically to who they were, why they clashed because of themselves, and so there wasn't as much cause and effect. And in the end, I feel more warmly towards the movie now because on the second watch, I was more prepared for the dramatic parts of it. And I think it actually works for me better as a dramatic movie and a story of all the the possibilities of life for these men at this time than it does as a comedy. So I think the same thing that happened maybe to the audiences at the time happened to me is like you go in wanting one thing, which is Eddie and Martin going off in a story where it sort of has a lot of narrative momentum and you kind of don't get either of those things. You get some weird things that sort of throw you off the trail. But in the end, I felt like it kind of works as a sitcom. Like it's yeah. more like situations You meet these guys, you spend time with them and then episodic stuff happens, right? Like the baseball episode doesn't move the story forward. They actually don't have that much to do with can't get right success right. or failure, even though they think they do. And they're, they're mad when they don't get taken along with them. But they, that was just kind of like the guest character of the week popped in yeah. and they, they kind of rode with it.
0: But that's got, a good point. I, yeah. Actually, the way the way you say that it is like, it is very episodic. Like there's chapters to the story and they don't all have to tie into any kind of big narrative, but they're just yeah, like slices of life.
1: But I'm changed. okay with that.
0: Yeah, the movie works <laughs> on its own terms, it, but just might not work on the the terms other people set for it. That's if that true. makes sense, yeah, I think they made the movie they wanted to, and it just confused audiences.
2: Right, right. that's really what.
0: I mean. I mean, I like looking at some of the other movies. The actors do around like their big flops to see if maybe there was some kind of indication. So looking at Martin Lawrence's movies from around this time, he made Nothing to Lose in 97. And I also looked at what these movies were rated because I think maybe there's a correlation there. Um. So Nothing to Lose is rated R. It about broke even. It really didn't make any money, but it didn't lose a lot either. Then Blue Street came out in 99, a few months after this. That was a big hit. And that's rated PG-13. And then Big Mama's House was his next big movie that he was the lead actor in. That was 2002, also PG-13, also a big hit. And then Murphy was kind of like going back and forth. He did Holy Man in 98, PG movie, huge flop terrible movie too. I've never, I've
2: never seen it. Like I've seen the cover. He's like in all white or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's got a shaved head. Yeah, and I've never seen it but then I remember I was just doing a deep Eddie Murphy dive like three, four years ago and I saw that movie in the, on the list and I was like, what the fuck is Holy Man? <laughs> and I was like, I've never, nobody has ever told me about this movie. My parents are like the biggest Eddie Murphy fans and never brought it up. So one day I'm going to sit down and watch it. But
0: it's like, Yeah, it's one of those movies that just came and went and nobody remembers it at all Like yeah, <laughs> except if you're, you run a podcast about movies that lost a lot of yeah, money you I don't might know, know
2: about it. regular person that could tell me what's the plot to holy man
0: no definitely not but then of course he had dr doolittle the year before this that was a huge hit yeah. and then he made bowfinger right after this one and bowfinger yeah. i think is a really good movie yeah, uh, that's a good- it didn't make a lot of money it about broke even so, yeah, they were both kind of on a real like up and down slope in their career. Yeah. And then Murphy wouldn't go on to make another R-rated movie after this until Dolomite is my name in 2019. Wow. Um, yeah. I thought Dreamgirls was rated R, but it wasn't. It was PG-13. So this, I think maybe he got a little gun shy after this movie kind of bombed and he he started making a little more kind of family friendly movies. But now he's back. He's got Coming to America and Dolomite is my name in the last couple of years, which I both think were, were hits for him. Like you know, they were streaming, obviously, but a lot of people watched him and liked him. Dolomite is my name. Even got some Oscar buzz. Yeah. Um, I, that I movie fucking it. rules. So.
1: I
2: love Dolomite. It was great.
0: So yeah, I just think we kind of figured out at least our hypothesis about what went wrong with this movie is just word of mouth kind of killed it because it didn't meet people's expectations. But if you go into the movie 22 years later without those expectations, I think right. this movie really works. Like I really enjoyed it.
2: And I think a movie like that, you can't spend 80 million to make it. That's part of it. Oh like goodness. those kind of movies, you got to keep it somewhere between 30 and 50, I really think. Yeah, that mid
0: budget zone would be like perfect for this. But then they, there was so much that went into, like we said, the period piece setting of it and making it accurate. Right. I mean, that will drive your budget up in no time at all.
1: Yeah. And- like we didn't talk about the, the Boom Boom Room fantasy sequence. It's so, yeah. it looks so beautiful. It's my so favorite good. part of the movie, and it. But it's kind of extraneous, right? Because it's like, what did it? What did we get from that? We learned jokes. That's pretty much. Sure. Yeah, cool jokes is seeing these characters transposed into this fantasy world, which yeah, is really you fun. Get to, you get to see them not be in prison for a second. Yeah,
0: right. We yeah. Get to, yeah we didn't talk about Anthony Anderson in this movie. This was like his real breakout so role. His first, like, yeah. he'd acted in TV before, and he'd been in one movie before this, but this was his first movie where his character had a name. I think he played like inmate number one in another movie, but Cookie was like his first real role and he he killed it. I thought he was hilarious.
2: But- yeah, the guy telling him, uh, shut your mouth and your fat ass. Like that shit <laughs> is so funny.
0: Who said that was that Hoppin' Bob that said that? Bob. Hop and Bob, another oh. great character we didn't talk about.
2: Oh, he one of my favorite characters too. He said, I ain't nice like boss, I slap him. It is just so funny because it's like, dude, you're not in charge. He's such a dick. Tell him about the gun line, boss. Like, all that shit. Like, yo. Yeah, he's also
0: like a little guy. He's got the Napoleon complex kind of going on, too. As a 5'8 man, I can say that.
2: Yeah, Sam, 5'8 as well. He hated Ray and Claude because they were from New York and he felt like they thought they was hot shit because they were from
0: New York. Well, hold on now. I mean, who's saying that being from New York doesn't make you hot shit?
2: Well, you know, I bring it, it up often enough, but in the thirties, you coming down to Mississippi, and most of those guys can't read and all that kind of shit. So they probably yeah. Still. Ray
0: was a little too boastful about it. Let's say, like <laughs> if he played it cool, they probably might not have had such a grudge against him. But he brought it up every chance he got. All right, so that was life. Is there anything else anybody wanted to say about it?
2: I, can I shout out my friends? Uh, we always watch this shit together. Of course. Yeah, shout out to my friends: uh, David and Josh and Madison and Frankie. We just we were like. I think the first time we all watched it together we were maybe like 13, 14 and we would just get high and watch this shit and we just kind of made it a thing throughout like high school like up until now we still quote the movie and we all 26, 27 years old so it's just it's like that movie is kind of like our friendship was made around that movie because we would just watch it all the time because I think we just kind of found the DVD at someone's house and Mm -hmm. we had never seen it we were like Eddie Murphy and Martin did a movie together (laughs) and because it wasn't like a big box office thing nobody had really said anything about it and so we watched it and we're just crying, laughing the whole time. And then like your kids from Mississippi. So like that made it even funnier. Yeah. That, that was like our movie. And then like it got to the point where like our parents like rewatched it again. And so like my dad and my aunt, they like quote a lot of the lines now. And that kind of it's definitely like one of those movies you go back and be like, oh man, this movie was great. We, we were wrong. So I'm glad to be a part of like, the generation that didn't make that a box office flop. I can say like I discovered it After 10, the years, fact. 10 years later. So
0: Yeah, when I reached out to, to Niles to be on the pod, I was like, I have a list of like two hundred you know twenty movies or whatever. If you want to look through them, he was like, I know which movie I want to talk about immediately. One of my favorite movies is a box office bomb, and <laughs> he yeah, came with Eddie, this one.
2: It makes me mad that this flopped, you know, because I feel like maybe Eddie could have made more movies that like had that heart behind it like this. Yeah. It, it is a
0: bummer that it maybe scared him off from doing more like this. Cause right. yeah. It's, it's but of, I
2: think he's back in it. Cause I feel like Dolomite kind of had that same kind of feeling to it. So I'm excited to see what he does. You know,
0: and I got to shout out Wesley Snipes, his performance in Dolomite was, oh. uh, was awesome.
2: That,
1: that took, I didn't, I did not know Wesley was funny. That right. Was funny.
0: What about you, Ian? What were your closing thoughts on the
1: movie? I don't know. I think I kind of already said it. Like I feel a lot more warm towards this movie now. I did, especially hearing what it means to other people. Like i watched the first time like, oh, this movie let me down because I wanted it to do something that it didn't do. But it's a very pleasing movie. So I'd hate to come out of this episode sounding like I'm telling anybody not to watch it. And I usually find a reason to tell people to watch whatever we cover, whether we ended up thinking it was wonderful or terrible. There's a lot to like in this movie.
0: Absolutely yeah i've kind of said my piece already but i'll definitely be adding this movie to like the rotation every year or two i'm definitely going to throw it on for like a movie that you don't have to sit down and take notes to follow the plot it's just kind of like moves at its own pace it's really enjoyable to watch and uh, except for the super sad moments which we talked about (laughs) so everyone do yourself a favor follow niles on twitter instagram wherever you need to go find him his uh, ads will all be in the episode notes stream his special Listen to the Clowncast and follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Subscribe, rate, review, do all that good stuff, and thank you for joining
1: us this week in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.